0: This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.
1: Welcome, welcome. This show is packed with hard-hitting guests. From Australia, scientist Matthew England explains new Antarctic science that literally changes the whole world. I talk with 11-year-old Zach Fox Duvall about his We the Children podcast. From public citizen, Erica T. Patterson reports frontline action to clean up car making including the surprise worst manufacturer we all thought was so green. I'm Alex Smith. There is no time to waste. Let's get going. Radio EcoShock. Deep waters around Antarctica are hiding a shock for the world. The great ocean circulation engine around the Earth may be slowing down faster than we thought. This could affect global fisheries, dead zones, carbon dioxide levels, weather, and sea level rise, among other things. You need to hear this important new science. Bill McKibben says this, not Donald Trump, is the biggest story around. Our guide is study co-author Professor Matthew England. He is Deputy Director of the ARC Centre for Excellence in Antarctic Science. That is located at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Matthew is a veteran scientist and top-level expert. From Sydney, Australia, Matthew England, welcome back to Radio EcoShock.
2: Great. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Good to be with you.
1: So several Radio EcoShock guests have explained the weakening of the ocean current that carries heat to the eastern seaboard, the UK and northern Europe. But we knew little about the other end of that chain of currents, the Antarctic overturning circulation. Why is so much of your new science coming as a bit of a surprise, even to the experts?
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, we've had a lot of measurements in the North Atlantic for such a long, long amount of time. You know, both the European community and the the North American community have had shipping vessels there making measurements for a long time. We have measurements as well around Antarctica, but they're much more sparse and there's much less awareness of the southern hemisphere component of this overturning circulation.
1: Why did you investigate the deep waters around Antarctica? Were there clues or signals of an important change there? With these
2: measurements, even though they're, they're sparse in time, we have enough of them over the past 30 or 40 years, measurements especially during the 1990s that we've revisited in the last 10 years and we could see a signal of very deep ocean warming and this is at the very bottom of the ocean and for about 10 years now we've, we've looked at that warming signal and scientists haven't been sure whether that's an invasion of anthropogenic heat. And so what I mean by that is that the overturning is completely unchanged in its strength it's just getting our anthropogenic warming signal into the bottom of the ocean or that it could have been a slowdown. And so this question for mine went on unanswered for too long and I, I wanted to basically configure an ocean model experiment that basically pins down, is it a slowdown or is this warming part of the ocean's ability to sequester heat and put it into the deep ocean? And, and this set of experiments really was aimed to do that and the answer that came back was, was much clearer than I, than I thought it might be and that is that you can virtually only get that signal with an overturning slowdown. And the reason why I say you can only get that signal with a slowdown is that getting heat from our surface into the, into the bottom of the ocean is hard to do when you're making that surface water fresh and also warm because you're making the water too buoyant to sink. Um, and so in a way, once we found the answer, it was kind of like, "Oh, of course, that's how it works. But I think we needed the model experiments to really tease out the physics in, in greater detail.
1: But is it really possible that ice melt in Antarctica could change the Gulf Stream and weather in northern Europe from the other end of the world?
2: Well, what changes the flow in the Gulf Stream is the melt coming off Greenland primarily. For our study, the overturning circulation of Antarctica is, sits actually below, if, you, if I sort of could draw a cross-section of the world's oceans, the deep ocean is ventilated both from the North Atlantic, where the Gulf Stream flows up towards Greenland, and also from these waters around Antarctica. But what's nice about the ocean system is that the two of them, those two water masses kind of don't occupy the same volume. So the the Gulf Stream overturning or the North Atlantic overturning comes in at about 2,000 metres depth. The Antarctic overturning comes right to the bottom of the ocean, down below 4,000 metres, where it resurfaces back up to the surface. So these two overturning cells kind of sit um, in harmony together. They're both kind of what we call in an on state, which means that they're overturning massive volumes of water from the surface down to the ocean's interior. And it's a very important thing that they, that they do this because basically our global climate, where our monsoon rains are, how much heat the oceans take up, how much heat goes from the equator to the poles, these really fundamental ways our climate system operates have been kind of used to these overturning circulations being on and stable for hundreds to thousands of years. And what we're doing at the moment is disrupting them with this meltwater. Um, and so, yeah... The bad news is we have massive sheets of ice right near where these overturning circulations are established, and we're adding meltwater water at an unprecedented rate in those very locations. And it can lead to change, as we documented in a study.
1: I was also surprised about the role, the strong role of meltwater compared to wind or temperature. I mean, we're surface creatures. We think, well, the the globe is heating and, and it's, the winds are contracting around Antarctica. Those are the drivers of global climate change. But no, meltwater is super important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, initially in our runs, actually the first 10, 15 years, the winds and warming signal is, is the biggest signal. But at about the year 2020, about now, in, in the in, so our, our model runs start as a hindcast, they run from the 30 years up to today and then they run to the middle of the 21st century. So we have 30 years either side of today in a way to look at with these simulations. And that wind and thermal forcing is really important at the start. And it's important to remember also when I talk about meltwater, it's melting because of the warming. So when listeners hear about us separating out the warming effects from meltwater, what we're doing is, a, is separating out the warming of the ocean surface from the addition of meltwater to the ocean surface, but it's important to remember it's actually global warming that's driving that ice melt to start with. So back to your, your comment, it really did surprise me that that warming effect of the ocean surface and the and the wind changes got overwhelmed so strongly by meltwater. It really, when meltwater takes over, and it, it, in a way we're at that point where it is taking over because the meltwater we're adding is in such big concentrations. There's wonderful animations that NASA put out on... I mean, they're wonderful visually, but they're terrible news for our climate system. Um, The amount of meltwater going into the oceans is just phenomenal right now. And, And you can't have this meltwater going in and expect it to do nothing to the oceans. You know, quite the contrary. It makes the waters at the surface very buoyant, and that means they don't sink. And so a natural consequence of warming... Our planet melting ice means that we will slow down these overturning circulations. Exactly how much by is is going to be set by our our future track of of carbon emissions.
1: Well, another surprise, which you mentioned, is that I thought the deep ocean would not warm for centuries. And recent science, including repeated ship measurements, show the low layer of the ocean that we're talking about, below 4,000 metres or about two and a half miles down, it is warming. What is happening and Why? Yeah, no, 100%. It,
2: it's a it's a really distinct signal and and it's it's warming the most right up against Antarctica. So it's not like we just see some patches of warming here or there. There's a very distinct fingerprint of warming that we're seeing in the oceans abyss. It's warming the fastest near Antarctica and that amount of warming then attenuates as you move north and that's a classic signal of an Antarctic overturning slowdown because you're you're actually warming the waters closest to the source. You're seeing that impact of the overturning slowdown where, where you'd expect to see it, right where the slowdown's originating. And as time progresses, that warming signal will strengthen as you go northward, but it's still, you know, the peak signal's going to be right at the Antarctic margin because that's where this icy cold water has been sinking for centuries. And if we turn off the tap of that icy cold water reaching the ocean's seafloor, you, you're going to see warming really quickly in response to that. It's not like we need to wait decades to see a response. And that, that's it. I agree, that's, it's kind of surprising if you think about the oceans at those depths, you think about them being quite slowly moving. But actually, the overturning is, is pretty vigorous. There's 250 trillion tons of water every year that sinks from the surface around Antarctica into the ocean's abyss. And if you halve that, or even if you drop it down by 15, 20%, you're going to see a temperature signature almost in, in real time.
1: And the deepest Antarctic waters, they form a giant pool in Earth's oceans, and you've found those Antarctic bottom waters are shrinking. Why would the bottom layer shrink, and how does that become a mechanism that enables faster ice melt further up?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And so when we talk about the waters shrinking, you sort of think, okay, is that going to drop sea levels? So like you think about a water mass shrinking... What we mean is we, if we go look at the volume of water, say, colder than a certain temperature, that volume of water, colder than zero degrees, and remember, seawater sea only freezes at, at minus two almost, so um, we do have sub-zero water down there, and that's the, the waterfall in Antarctica. The volume of that water that's below zero degrees Celsius is contracting. Um, we've already got estimates of that from observations, and that's what we see in our model um, and so that contraction just means we're losing that icy cold water and it, it then gets filled, you know, that void that you leave by, by not overturning the water around Antarctica down to the ocean abyss. You, you basically see the, the, the water above it, the, the warm water above it slump down and it's the best verb to use, that sort of slumps down, basically collapses down. You actually, you would see a slight signature in sea level from this but other things are going on as well that with, with ocean warming but yeah with, with that water turning off on Antarctica um, you do see a contraction and as you said one of the real concerns that, that I see in our simulations is that you see in response a warming up on the shelf so the bottom of the ocean right up near Antarctica's ice caps that water there warms especially in the West Antarctic sector and the reason that's a big concern is that the very signal creating this deep ocean warming is meltwater. water And you're actually creating more warming right where the meltwater is. And that's what we call in in climate system science a, a positive feedback or an amplifying feedback where the initial change that you trigger actually cascades to more changes that reinforce the original change. And we don't want to see those sorts of things play out because when they do, it means that we're pushing the climate system with a little nudge. And it's responding by taking that nudge into changes that reinforce the original change and you get then a, a really rapid change. And you know, that, that's the sort of thing we don't want to see around West Antarctica because of the ice sheets that flow into the ocean that they raise sea levels. And the meltwater that's being added there, if it, if it has this amplifying feedback, it would mean that our sea level estimates for the coming century need revising uh, w- you know, with extra warmth expected there um, on the shelf.
1: So we've got unimaginable amounts of ice sitting in glaciers on land onto Antarctica, and then we have these great ice shelves that are prodding out into the sea. If those were to melt away, do they add to sea level rise around the world, or why does it matter if they do melt faster, the ice shelves? Yeah,
2: exactly. So the ice shelves themselves are, are, are floating. It's an amazing structure of ice and Antarctica. You've got the actual land beneath the Antarctic ice sheet it's quite amazing to look at it. You can go online for your listeners. Go and go and Google. You know what's the bedrock shape? Antarctica is not a big continent of, of bedrock with icy on top of it. It's actually a lot of islands, a lot of smaller landmasses. I sometimes sort of hold my fingers up in a talk and and imagine me holding a block of ice with my with my fingertips on top of it because it really looks like that in some parts of Antarctica, especially around the West Antarctic. So that land ice that sits on those chains of bedrock that support it, when that land ice melts, it raises sea levels. But the actual ice shelves themselves are a, a, an extension of the land ice that's now effectively floating on, on the water. So the ice shelf melt doesn't itself raise sea levels, but unfortunately, we know those ice shelves, um, whilst they float in water, they actually buttress. They give some sort of um, push back to the ice sheets behind them, and so this flow of the glaciers off the land into the ocean that becomes these ice shelves. If you lose the ice shelves there, you actually accelerate the flow. It's very clear. We've seen ice shelves going around Antarctica, and the stream flow of the land ice behind those ice shelves unfortunately accelerates when you lose the, lose the ice shelves. So it's a complex array of ice, but if we start losing bits of that ice, even the sea ice is problematic to lose. That, that's, that's another type of ice that actually floats entirely on seawater, it's formed every winter when when it gets cold enough. Just like you'd see over the Great Lakes, where it's cold enough, these, these ice this ice forms out of the, out of the seawater. Losing that ice as well has potential amplifying effects because of the ice albedo. And so, uh, you know, the, the short message is: this ice that we have over Earth's surface is a critical part of our climate system. It reflects heat. Um, it, it actually stores fresh water that would otherwise raise sea levels. If we melt it and any big change like we're seeing down there, you know, it can affect ocean circulation and there can be further feedbacks. But it really, you know, we, we don't want to change the concentration, volume, distribution of ice on our, on our planet. We are unfortunately changing it with our emissions of greenhouse gases. And there are big knock on effects through sea level rise, through changes in ocean circulation um, and so on. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at EcoShock.com.
1: This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. We're talking about big changes to oceans around Antarctica, which will affect the whole world. Our guest is Professor Matthew England from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Getting to the heart of the problem, I think we have two disturbing discoveries here. One is the process, and the other is timing. Would you remind our listeners about the basic of global ocean circulation and And how your new science fits into that.
2: I mean, the ocean circulation on our planet has been relatively stable for a long period of time. All of um, the development of our cities, all of the location of where we have our farming, agriculture, water management, huge developments of of infrastructure that support humanity and support our, our ability to produce food and water and so on has been developed during this relatively stable climate period up until about 100 years ago when we started to see the very first signs of human interference with the climate system. These currents that we talk about, you know, the Gulf Stream extension up into the far North Atlantic or the overturning of Antarctica, they set how our planet's climate works. And I don't think 30 or 40 years ago when we first looked at how greenhouse gases would change our climate. Initially, we just think about warming of the atmosphere you know, more heat waves, you know, definitely thermal expansion, sea level rise, and definitely ice melt. But the cascading through of these changes to resetting, you know, to halving the overturning circulation around Antarctica, I think is, is surprising. You know, we're talking about the textbook description of how the oceans work. They, they have a ventilation of, of these waters from the surface to the ocean abyss that, that keep them healthy. If you think about a fish tank, Nobody in there, you know, would set up a fish tank with stagnant water where the water just sits still and the fish basically have to live in that environment with no overturning, if you like, within the fish tank. It's a good parallel for the oceans. You know, if we lose lose this abyssal overturning of water from the surface to to back to the top, we we sort of cut out a way that the oceans overturn or renew and we cut out a way that oxygen gets into the oceans. And so there are knock-on effects for marine life. We won't thankfully see... You know, extinction of marine life at the surface because this overturning is cut down because there are other ways that the ocean is ventilated at the surface. You know, there, are, there are waves and swell that waves break and that puts oxygen into the ocean and there's nutrients that come in off the land and there's a whole marine life cycle that happens at the surface that is an intricate web of these processes occurring. But if we cut out the, the resurfacing of nutrients from the bottom of the ocean back to the surface, we're taking out a really important bit of the marine food web. We're taking out a source of nutrients that, is, that will be noticeable for those upper-ocean ecosystems. And in terms of the time scale of change, that plays out progressively. You know, if you take out the nutrients coming back to the surface over time, you just end up leaving a lot of nutrients in the ocean abyss. Um, there was a study out, not related to ours, by other, other authors a couple of years ago, looking at the hypothetical, what happens if this slows down. And they showed this ecosystem impact really clearly that you, you lose some of the phytoplankton productivity at the surface by keeping the nutrients right down the bottom of the ocean. And that in turn means that you lose some of the ocean's ability to uptake carbon. So all these changes that, that are related to a slowdown, they might seem small on a year-to-year basis, but integrated over time, as the next few decades play out in the next century, you know, they're going to have impacts that are potentially very costly to us. And that's why we keep talking about addressing the root cause of these um, emissions that we're putting into the
1: atmosphere. Yes. In February 2023, I interviewed Dr. Keith Moore. He's a professor of earth system science at the University of California, Irvine. He co-authored several papers on declining marine biological productivity due to slower overturning circulation. He warns plankton will get less food, as you just said, if the overturning weakens. And, you know, probably a billion people depend on seafood for protein, and 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 the whole ocean web depends on this stuff. These are Serious, serious changes we're talking about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. First order stuff, fundamental parts of the way we rely on the ocean. And, and people, people come to in a way take the ocean for granted. You know, it moderates our climate. It provides a huge proportion of the world's population with food. Um, they also take up carbon for us, which they only take up carbon. Well, they take up carbon for a couple of reasons, but one of the big reasons is this biological productivity that's there, and, and it's really that phytoplankton level. It's a bit like planting forests to draw down carbon on land. The algae in the ocean, the marine life that photosynthesizes in the ocean, uh, also needs those nutrients to, to be viable, and, and cutting off a source of nutrients is, is the last thing you want to do. When you, you know, rely on the oceans, as we do as humans on this planet, we rely on the oceans for food production, we rely on the oceans for absorbing carbon and taking a, you know, a quarter of our emissions out of the atmosphere and 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 keeping them in the ocean, and these sorts of three-way, three services, if you like, of, of ocean climate mitigation, um, are really important for keeping our climate stable, for providing us with food, and so on.
1: The other shocker, Matthew, is how fast this ocean system could tip. Uh, frankly, most experts were using the language, "Well, we may have started a process that will enlarge after 2100 and beyond in the in the coming centuries or millennia." What does your new science tell us about the possible timing of big changes?
2: Yeah, I think that a lot of these changes that, that we're seeing play out, you know, we're rarely coming across a system where we go, oh, this is changing slower than we thought. This is not just, is not just our work that seems to be outpacing projections. I think a lot of people are finding some of the worst impacts of climate change, whether it's bleaching coral reefs, increases in heat waves or so on. Things are playing out faster than a lot of the projections that we had would suggest. And, and so, you know, this is a real concern. We, we're we in a situation right now where the, the pace of change is such that adaptation measures are becoming urgent. And, and so where, you know, the, the very work that we need to do to reduce emissions is one part of the problem that we need to solve urgently. What concerns me a lot is if governments start going, well, gee, the changes that are coming along, they're also bad and we need to start getting ready for those changes and they the resources then are effectively spread thinly, you know, rather than getting to the root cause and solving that as we, as we should have been doing for the last couple of decades. Governments have been lazy to solve that problem and and now we're seeing um, adaptation measures, seawalls, desalination plants to provide drinking water, whole-scale shifts of where farming is undertaken. I mean, these sorts of changes are incredibly costly and what concerns me is that the pace of change um, over the next few decades will be such that governments start to, to put their time and energy into those adaptation measures, which are important to do. But the problem is our pace of change is set by greenhouse gas emissions and some really, really critical work at reducing those emissions is, is being, in a, in a way, back-ended for future generations to solve by not addressing those emissions today.
1: Do you think a decrease in the ocean overturning in the southern latitudes would affect weather in South America, Australia, or New Zealand?
2: Yeah, there are ways that if you slow the overturning down, you you'd change the way that the planetary energy budget works. You, you actually um, change the amount of heat coming toward Antarctica on a very global scale. A previous study um, that I wasn't part of out of the U.S. showed that if you slow the overturning circulation, you actually shift rainfall in the tropics you shift it a bit away from the southern hemisphere and push it a bit more into the northern hemisphere so there is that effect but on top of that with with rainfall especially there's, there's you know greenhouse gas warming is also making our whole atmosphere more humid um it's changing el nino la nina cycles we think making them more intense so there are other changes going on on top of the overturning slowdown so in in this paper we didn't um and the media that followed we really focused on those two other effects that we spoke about earlier, one being the feedback to further ice shelf melt, which I think is a really worrying one because it plays out in in near real time, and the other one being this nutrient resupply back to the surface. But but you're right, the the overturnings are so significant both in the Southern Ocean and in the North Atlantic, that if you change them, you do have an impact on stuff that seems far away, like the tropical rainfall belts are, are shifted north or south.
1: Who is monitoring these big changes in the southern latitudes? Will we know if it is happening and how fast?
2: You yeah, know, it's a really good question and we've, we've got observing systems out there that a lot of the nations who are making measurements in the southern ocean have seen evidence enough that, that of some of these overturning changes and now and where we put our moorings and where we put our data observing platforms are partly gauged to, to measure those changes. Having said that, it's really hard because Antarctica is such a vast, such vast distance to, to surround it. To go and put in moorings that measure all the flows that come off the continent down to the ocean abyss is really tricky. So we don't tend to track this by looking at the ocean flows, but instead we, we look at the proxies for the ocean flow, which are things like oxygen, um, because this water is very high in oxygen compared to the surrounding water masses, and also things like temperature and salinity. So... We're focusing measurements of the ocean abyssal changes with these much more practical means. Temperature, oxygen especially, are very good for tracking how this overturning is going. Um, unfortunately, those measures that we're seeing you know, suggest we're not about to see a slowdown, but that we're actually midway through one. Whether we're 10% into a slowdown or 20% or 5% is much harder to, to, to estimate, but um, definitely the measurements we have around the continent suggest we're midway through a slowdown.
1: If this circulation system tips within coming decades, many of my listeners will be alive as those changes take place. Assuming we don't cut our emissions as we must in the next few years, what would people see in 2040 or 2050 that is different?
2: Yeah, I mean, the biggest impact over the next few decades will be that feedback onto further ice melt. And so our rates of sea level rise so far have been quite manageable, even uh, even so, they've certainly been seeing low-lying regions of the world notice those changes. And when I say manageable, so far we've had 25 or so centimetres, you know, 12, 13, 14 inches, that sort of dimension of, of change over the last um, century or so. That's enough to be detectable. What we're expecting in the coming century could be as much as a, as a metre. So I, I'm bad with my conversion to imperial units, but I think it's about three foot, foot of change um, could occur in the next 80 years, and that level of sea level rise would see big impacts on uh, all the world's coastlines. Uh, you know, cities and, and communities that living by the seaside would see inundations occurring more frequently, potentially having to see mass migrations from low-lying, or de- definitely see mass migrations out of low-lying mega-deltas through Asia. Um, Pacific islands that are low-lying would have to be abandoned. And th- th- this is... You know, people hear that news and they, if they're not living there, they don't necessarily see that as an issue. But the, the global political instability, I mean, and it's selfish to think that, obviously, because these are people who's, whose communities have, have relied on, on those lands to live on for, for thousands and thousands of years. It's, it's, it's terrible to see that loss of human habitat. But, but don't for a moment think that that wouldn't be a global problem mass migrations out of some of these low-lying areas that are very heavily populated, um, because after all, as you mentioned earlier, we rely on the oceans for food and so on. Um, you know, mass migration out of these regions would lead to knock-on effects globally. A, a lot of, this is not my area of research, but a lot of people would look at political instability. Um, you know, One of the biggest concerns with sea level, also with, with climate change, is that political instability that would occur with mass migration out of, some regions and into others it puts a tremendous strain on the whole world not just the people that have to relocate it's um, it's really alarming to think about how much some of these changes could knock on not just from the overturning circulation that we're describing in this paper but um, from all of climate change altering the, the habitability of, of some of these regions.
1: As we wrap up is there anything you would like to add or would you like to tell us what you're working on now?
2: No, look I, I'm the main thing, main message I'm, I'm trying to push is that all is not lost with this overturning circulation. It's not like it's doomed to to slow down and, and be extinguished for all of time. We can a- address the problem of ice, not by slowing our emissions by getting them to net zero, and we need to. Otherwise, from very basic ocean physics, you know, with virtual certainty, we will slow these overturning circulations down and they will be extinguished and they're not easy to switch back on. And so my main message is, you know, this is yet another wake-up call amongst many for addressing the root source of emissions. But from a scientific point of view, it's what my group's really, really concerned to go look at next is this feedback on the Amazon, and Belling's and Sea so that West Antarctic sector that I spoke about, the warming there, we really need to understand that warming, how it plays out, how much ice melt would then be achieved by that warming, because it's, it's of the whole system that changes in response to the slowdown, that's the, the one that's so visible and so clearly visible early in the in the projections that it has has my concern at how, as how as to how that would play out over the next a um, decade or so in terms of global sea level
1: rise from the University of New South Wales Center for Excellence in Antarctic Science we have been speaking with professor Matthew England he is the lead scientist in the new paper titled Abyssal Ocean Overturning Slowdown and Warming, driven by Antarctic meltwater. Learn more on my show blog at ecoshock.org. Matthew, thank you for talking with us about this important new science.
2: Thanks so much, Alex. Really appreciate you having me.
1: You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org.
2: This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith.
1: Move over, Greta Thunberg, and move on, Alex Smith. There's a great new climate podcaster on the scene from Los Angeles, California. He is 11-year-old Zach Fox-Devall. Zach is co-writer and host of the We the Children podcast. He has a production team, including a media-savvy mom, plus his second-grade teacher, Claire Martyr. I tuned in with a kind of humor-the-kids attitude and was blown away. I learned a lot from just one podcast. Seriously. From Los Angeles, Zach fox welcome to Radio Ecoshock.
3: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: Hi, Zach. Well, in my show, I interview a lot of climate scientists, and here's my problem. The reports can be a little scary, and I'm not sure how much I should tell my 13-year-old grandson. What would you advise?
3: I think it's important to have these conversations— Because the longer we go without knowing it, the scarier our situation is going to get. And at some point, they have to learn. And what helps me when I feel anxious is to volunteer and do whatever I can to help the planet.
1: And, you know, parents used to dread talking to their kids about how bodies really work. They called it the conversation. But these days, it kind of works the other way around. In a lot of households, kids are concerned about what they should say to their parents about climate change. If a young person thinks their parents might react badly, how could they approach it?
3: In episode 11 of my podcast, when I interview Heather White, my action step that week was all about how to talk to busy parents about your concerns for the environment. We walk through four steps, including find a good time and share your worries about the planet. And if your parents like to ski, fish, hike, for example. Explain how climate change could affect those hobbies. And finally, be realistic. Don't expect immediate change. Even small steps are steps in the right direction.
1: Well, I learned from your podcast, I think that kids have more power than they know to change adults. Your guest author Heather White got more active when her daughter shared her worries about the future and especially climate. But some parents, I think, feel accused or challenged. I mean, they've got to drive you to school. They've got to do all these fossil burning things just to get by. Have you heard kids say anything about this sort of anxiety in the household conversation?
3: Um, I haven't, but I think if kids approach their parents as a collaboration, something that the family can work on together, for example, I think that would be a good step. My family composts, we go on hikes, uh, we pick up trash, we help plant gardens at local schools. It's super fun, and we all feel good after.
1: Those are great suggestions. You have a format for the We the Children podcast, so what can we expect to find in most shows?
3: Oh, well, we start with a wacky weather segment, where we talk about crazy climate phenomena. And then we interview an expert on climate solutions. After that, we have trivia, and then we include an action step of the week to give families an idea of things they can do at home to help. We have a trivia, and most of our interview guests ace the trivia because it's typically focused on their area of expertise. And it's super fun to play along at home, too.
1: Well, no doubt everybody will ask you this question, but what did spark you to become a, a climate champion? Was there a time of inspiration or what?
3: I think it was more of an accumulation of experiences, so learning about change makers in schools such as Greta Thunberg and Dr. Jane Goodall, and then going to climate activist marches with my parents, as well as spending a lot of time in nature on our vacations, visiting Big Sur, Yosemite, uh, Glacier National Park, the Redwoods, and so on.
1: You began your first podcasting with a different one. It's a neat concept. Tell us about The Rule of the Bark.
3: So, Roll of the Bark was a project I started in summer of 2020 during COVID lockdown. Summer camps were all closed, so my mom set up to do Zoom sessions with my second grade teacher to practice writing. We wanted it to be fun, so we wrote scripts for a podcast where the host was my dog, Ewok, and I was the voice of Ewok. We gave advice in the 10 episodes about how to raise a dog, and I always interviewed another kid who had a dog, or a cat, to talk about their pet. And it was super fun,
1: right? The world from the view of the dog, and how to train your humans, really. So, in your experience, Zach, what are the media sources young people pay attention to, and and do those services include climate news and education?
3: Well, right now, a lot of people TikTok is really big, and I know there are a lot of TikTokers who post climate videos, and I do think that if we want to reach out and get the younger generations interested. It's important to go on platforms they use a lot, like TikTok and YouTube. I think that if you see your favorite YouTuber doing something for the planet, then you'll want to help out, too. For example, um, two YouTubers, Mark Roper and MrBeast, came together to, to create Team Trees and Team Seas. And they raised a lot of money and awareness. Team Seas, for example, for every dollar donated, they removed a pound of plastic from the ocean. I think it's super cool.
1: That is really cool. Speaking of media, I saw a photo of you, Zach Foxteval, with a kind of saint of mine, Dr. Jane Goodall. How did you meet her, and what part of her talk touched you the most?
3: Yes, well, I was lucky enough to meet Dr. Jane Goodall when I was traveling with my family in London. The part of her talk that inspired me the most, well, that's kind of hard to choose, because Uh, she spoke about her hope for the future, and that was really powerful. Then she also talked about how do you reach people's hearts and values to create positive change. That's important to talk about. We need more stories about incredible climate solutions that are happening. We need kids involved in these conversations and learning about the inspiring work. I would love to see a documentary or TV show with families talking about how to fight climate change and families can work towards solutions, but Sadly, I don't think TV shows would be interested in promoting
1: that. With the COVID virus still hanging around, it seems hard to ask a million people to gather for a climate rally, even though it is outside. But we do need to know that a lot of people are worried about the climate, and we do want action. Do you or your guests have ideas for climate activism in these new times?
3: I think everyone needs to find their level of comfort with COVID. But uh, my family and I volunteer outside at beach cleanups and gardening at local areas. If I joined a rally and felt safer wearing a mask, then I would.
1: Most of my grandson's friends spend hours playing video games. It could be a sports game or Minecraft or even more violent war games, according to what the parents will allow. We all need distractions and fun. But do you think the real climate news is getting through to kids? And if so, how?
3: Well... We talk about climate change in my school, and I do see it in the news headlines, and I read about it in books and in magazines I get. And I actually recently started an eco-tip of the week in my school email that goes out to families once a week, and that was really cool. So I do think it's getting through to kids, but whether they're really listening to it, I don't know.
1: The states of Florida and Texas remove climate education and a lot of science from schools and even from school libraries. A teacher there might get fired for explaining the greenhouse effect and what causes it. What are your thoughts about the role school should play to prepare this generation for the real future?
3: I think that school is a great place to discuss climate change and what individuals can do, age appropriately, of course. I think that there should be more teaching about climate in all courses even make it part of the curriculum and there are some states doing this and i think it's great so young people know that climate change is going to shape every aspect of their futures and we all need climate education in order to develop green skills to adapt to our changing environment and to understand how to tackle climate change we all need to learn the basics of climate change before we can really do anything about it
1: i really agree with you there and young people that you meet Do you think there is a gender difference on climate action? Are boys or girls more likely to talk about climate? Do you think boys or girls talk differently about the climate?
3: No, not at all. I think it's just as important for everyone. You
1: know, at the Earth Summit in Brazil in 1992... The most famous voice for youth was Severn Cullis Suzuki. She founded the Environmental Children's Organization at age nine. More recently, we have Greta Thunberg, founder of Fridays for Climate School Strikes. When asked what her generation would do about climate threats, Greta got a little testy. She said, we should not be the ones having to do this. It should be up to adults and people in power and those who have caused this problem in the first place, end quote. What do you say, Zach?
3: I think that Greta acted appropriately, first of all. Uh, But what do I say? I think that we all need to pay attention and have more conversations about climate change. We don't need everyone to do everything perfectly. In fact, that is probably impossible. I don't think we're ever gonna get everyone to do that. But we just need a majority of people to do what they can. I just want people to pay attention. This is our single biggest issue. And if we don't make progress in the next few years, We will reach the point of no return. This is particularly hard on my generation. Adults won't feel the full pain of it, but my friends and I will.
1: And we've seen recent polls saying young people, especially teens, are more depressed, some of them. Obviously, you spend a lot of your life with other young people. Is eco anxiety out there?
3: So, in my interview with Heather White, she said that in September 2021, there was a global survey of. 10,000 young people, ages 16 through 25, and nearly half, about 47%, said that climate anxiety interfered with their daily life.
1: Tell us about your One Green Thing guest and what we can learn there.
3: So when I interviewed Heather White, I learned so much. Uh, For example, how do you get people to change their behavior? How do you get people to see themselves as agents for progress? And the research shows that someone is more likely to change their behavior, if that decision connects to a sense of identity. Uh, She says in her book, she calls this the law of identity. And it's what inspires her, she says, to create her service superpower assessment. And the service superpower assessment is a bit like a a Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram or Strength Finders. I took the assessment, actually, and I'm the philanthropist.
1: Well, you don't have to be rich to be a philanthropist. A philanthropist really means just... Giving what you can for other people. Exactly. I produce a weekly radio show for over 100 stations, and Radio EcoShock began, though, first as a podcast in 2006, and it was a new medium then. It was just taking off. I've asked you a lot of questions. What would you like to ask me?
3: Well, one question I have for you is, how do you keep motivated to keep doing what you're doing, and what inspires you?
1: Well, I do think my grandson has inspired me, just like uh, Dr. James Hansen of NASA said that his grandson is is something that's driving him. It's not good enough for older people to just say, well, climate change, the worst will come after I'm gone. I mean, we really do have to care about our kids. And as far as keeping motivated, I just feel as long as there's a chance we have to keep telling about this and and seeing if we can bring about a a better world— And I feel better when I can tell other people about it, people who care, our listeners. Does your podcast help you in this way?
3: Yeah, it does. I really enjoy talking to climate warriors who are working daily even to help the environment. It makes me feel much better to know the great ways that we are combating climate change. But I think it's also important to know the not-so-fun statistics and facts. We can't look away from the problem. We need to work together to find a solution.
1: Yeah, we've had psychologists and psychiatrists on this show and and a lot of wise people, and they tell us that we have to own our feelings about ecological damage. But I'm going to admit to you right now, this is my weak point. I don't like to talk about my deep feelings, even about climate change. How about you?
3: Well, I do talk to my parents about my feelings, of course, and sometimes that's scary, but I think it's important to talk. What gives me hope is when I learn about New companies like Notpla, Bokashi Composting, The Interceptor, and all the progress being made towards clean energy grid through solar, wind, and geothermal. Actually, California can reach 100, 100% clean energy on sunny, windy days, and some companies are using batteries to store the excess beyond 100%. It's things like these that give me hope and make me feel better.
1: And can you tell us what is coming up on the We the Children podcast?
3: Yes, thanks for asking. I recently interviewed an amazing scientist and glaciologist, Dr. Heidi Silvestro. Half the year, she lives in Svalbard. She is an incredible science communicator and educator, and she also leads several expeditions a year. It was really cool uh, speaking with her. We also interviewed a social change maker, Sheila Moravati, the founder of Habits of Waste. Uh, And Sheila talks about... Being an imperfect environmentalist, which I love because I think some people don't start because they are overwhelmed.
1: An imperfect environmentalist, I think that describes most of us. From Los Angeles, California, we've been speaking with 11-year-old podcaster Zach Fox-DeVol. Tune into his podcast, We the Children, on Apple, iTunes, almost everywhere. I will put links to his website and his latest podcast in my own show blog at ecoshock.org. Zach, thanks for talking with us and doing what you do. Keep it up. Of course. Tracking the Climate Challenge, Radio EcoShock at EcoShock.org. Don't you hate it when your green heroes go to the dark side? No, I didn't say Elon Musk. This is about the one-time good guys of the car industry. Now they're fighting to keep making polluting cars and trucks. If we name the worst of the bunch, you are in for a shock. This really matters. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says transportation emissions are the single largest source of greenhouse gases in the United States. And digging behind the scenes, just making cars hurts people and damages the environment. It could be better. Our guest is Erica T. Patterson from the NGO Public Citizen. Eric has a master's degree in urban and regional planning from UCLA She has led a number of remarkable campaigns for social justice in California and nationally. She was the Climate and Environment Justice Campaign Director for the Action Center on Race and the Economy. Now, Erica is the Auto Supply Chain Campaign Director for the NGO Public Citizen. From Los Angeles, Erica T. Patterson, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
0: Thanks so much, Alex. Really glad to be here.
1: All right, I'll start with a confession. My wife and I bought the most fuel-efficient car on the market at the time that we could afford. It was a used 2007 Toyota Yaris, and it gets 45 miles to the gallon, which is about 5 litres uh, per 100 kilometres for our European and Canadian listeners. And we love Toyota. So it was super disturbing last fall to hear the Toyota CEO, Akio Toyota, dismiss a switch to all-electric cars He committed Toyota to a long future, producing global warming machines. Erica, what is going on with the former green innovator, Toyota?
0: Yeah, I would say despite how Toyota's positioned its public image as being a leader on sustainable technology, Toyota has actively lobbied against climate policy and was ranked the automaker with the worst impact on climate policy uh, globally for two years running. I think other consumers would be disturbed to learn that Toyota joined a Trump-era lawsuit to strip the state of California of its ability to set its own vehicle emission standards. And in early uh, 2022, Toyota threatened to seize manufacturing cars in the UK if they didn't water down their strong, clean car rules. So, yeah, it's been really disturbing um, seeing the, the formerly recognized company that was perceived as being a leader on uh, providing sustainable vehicles, really pushing back on the strides they're trying to make towards sustainable transportation options.
1: But Toyota claims they lead the electrified vehicles field with more than 20 million hybrids sold worldwide. Those hybrid cars saved a lot of emissions.
0: What is the problem? So the problem with this is that there are cleaner, zero-emission options available that other automakers are investing in, and Toyota has been pushing back on making the transition to zero-emission vehicles. So it's it's very problematic that they're trying to halt transitions in this direction.
1: The hybrids still burn gas, uh, you know, part of the time, and we just can't do that anymore and still have a livable environment. Well, making cars the way we do now requires a ton of fossil fuels in production, all the way down the supply chain, which you specialize in. Erica, has anybody managed to add up the total carbon cost of making the average car?
0: I'm sure somebody has done a very difficult math of adding all those numbers up, but I think what I really want your listeners to know about the importance of cleaning up auto supply chains is that for decades, you know, supply chains have been really riddled with climate, environmental, and human rights abuses, and the EV transition is transforming the cars that we drive, but automakers are still largely operating as business as usual for their supply chains, which means people and our planet are continuing to be harmed. So ditching petrol and diesel means that the lifetime emissions of an EV are far lower than an internal combustion engine vehicle. But with EVs still being manufactured uh, with high-emission materials like steel and aluminum, we really need automakers to step up and commit to adopting policies and fossil-free um, supply chains and supply chains that are respecting and honoring um, workers' rights and business communities' rights and other communities on the front lines of extraction for those resources.
1: Right. Should we talk about race and social justice when it comes to car making?
0: We absolutely have to talk about race and social justice when talking about this transition. You know, workers, uh, frontline communities, and indigenous communities who are on the front lines of extraction, uh, they really must be at the center of guiding how we transform our supply chains to be truly sustainable, equitable, and responsible. Uh, In the auto supply chain scorecard, we found that no companies have a single standalone indigenous rights policy. That means all 18 automakers don't have uh, policies in place to prevent, mitigate, or remedy any kinds of um, issues or abuses that indigenous communities are facing in their supply chain, especially concerning given that um, in the U.S. alone, Many of the minerals needed for EVs are located within 35 miles of indigenous lands. And it's very clear from recent studies that growing demand for lithium could fuel water shortages, corporate and government seizure of indigenous lands, and our ecosystem destruction. So it's critically important that we talk about social justice and frontline and indigenous communities as we're transforming our supply chain.
1: Talk to us about the groups leading the fight for better behavior in the car industry. What are activists doing and asking for?
0: We the Charge is a diverse coalition of local, national, and global advocacy groups, such as Cultural Survival, First Peoples Worldwide, Industrious Labs, Sierra Club, and Mighty Earth, and, and many others. Sunrise Project, who are really demanding that these automakers leverage their purchasing power to um, transition their supply chains to be responsible, um, sustainable, and and equitably sourced. Uh, Well, for Toyota specifically, we're calling on Toyota to phase out internal combustion engine vehicles in the U.S. and Europe by 2030 and globally by 2035. We're also demanding that Toyota align uh, their advocacy and lobbying with the goals of phasing out fossil fuel-powered vehicles and to be really a voice for 100% renewable energy economy-wide. We're also demanding that these automakers require 100% renewable energy throughout their supply chains globally by 2035. We are also pushing for uh, Toyota and other automakers to require responsible sourcing of battery minerals, and to develop battery design that allows for easy reuse and recycling of those minerals. And you know, to the point I was making earlier about centering um, frontline indigenous, and other um, communities uh, uh, who live near sites of extraction, um, automakers must establish clear commitments to indigenous people's rights to free, prior, and informed consent and they should be extending that requirement to their suppliers. And then lastly, we also found that there's really a lack of commitment across the board on around workers' rights, and so we are demanding that companies pay their workers a living wage and um, commit to protecting workers' rights to unionize. Toyota specifically lacks a policy around um, living wages and protecting workers' rights to unionize. And this is especially concerning with Toyota's lack of uh, policy on workers, issue, workers' rights because Toyota allegedly interfered with workers' rights unionized at its uh, US facilities. And the company has opposed uh, federal legislation that would have expanded EV tax credits for EVs that are assembled in union facilities. And what's even more appalling is there have been recent reports that found massive links between major automakers, including Toyota, and China's uh, Xinjiang region, where the Chinese government is committing human rights abuses against Uyghur Muslims, uh, like forced labor. You
1: know, weather in the United States and around the world has been destabilized. I don't have to tell you about that in California. Just a storm after storm hitting there, and we've got crazy heat popping up in the land and in the sea. So we know a climate emergency is developing, and even making all electric vehicles burns a lot of carbon. The question no one wants to ask is just this: Can humans afford to keep on producing personal vehicles at all? What are your personal thoughts on that, Erica?
0: Yeah, I mean, as a as a an urban planner um, and as somebody who primarily walks and takes transit in a place like Los Angeles, that has such a strong car culture. And, you know, I I think that, sure, we do need to transition off of fossil fuel-powered cars to zero-emission electric cars because we really need to cut those tailpipe emissions. But this cannot be the only solution, um, especially given the way our supply chains operate. You know, we, of course, need automakers to clean up their supply chains. But I think we, what we really need to be talking about is, that we need ambitious policies around investing in mass transit, making our cities and towns more walkable, and creating a, a circular economy so that we have you know, robust systems in place to recycle batteries and to, to really have a more sustainable approach with the materials that are needed for our um, personal vehicles, for our transit vehicles, and so forth.
1: We all want a stable climate, and we want clean air to breathe, but real life as it is, it feels like we need to go along to get along. We we need to make compromises and burn a little fossil fuel here and a little there. You've talked about the LEAD, the CHARGE coalition. We know uh, Public Citizen and Greenpeace and other groups are working hard on this. How can we help? Well,
0: there's a couple of ways that um, you and your listeners can Join the fight to demand greater accountability and transparency from automakers and to push them to clean up their supply chains. Uh, email action that uh, folks could take, which will send um, emails to all of the automakers so that we can communicate the breadth um, of support for this change that we're seeking. And we'd love any amplification that you and your listeners can do on social media around a recent letter that um, Public Citizen and 54 other organizations from 26 countries sent to um, the new CEO, of Toyota, demanding that he phase out combustion engine cars and anti-climate lobbying and build fossil-free, equitable, and responsible supply chains. We really love any support with amplifying that on social media and make sure that the new CEO, Koji Sato, um, uh, that we're all watching for his,
1: his next move. From the Climate Campaign and Public Citizen, we've been speaking with Erica T. Patterson. You can find out more at leadthecharge.org and www.citizen.org, and I'll put links to Erica's work and that letter in my own show blog at ecoshock.org so you can be a part of this movement. Please find out more about the real costs of cars and the best choices. Erica, thank you for helping us on Radio Ecoshock.
0: Thank you, Alex. Really appreciate
1: it. That's it for this show. Check out all our past programs free at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening, and let's meet up again next week.